All right, you guys can have a seat. Like we said, good morning, welcome. We are glad to be gathered sitting here at Jesus's feet. So, uh, all right, we have been starting um, for the new year. Typically as a church, around the new year, we do what's called a prophecy update. One of the, I think, important things that we do as a church is the preaching and teaching of God's word in terms of communicating the gospel. But one of the other important aspects of the gospel, Jesus came, he died on a cross, rose again, and then he ascended. But he said, look, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. And so each year, I think it's really important, really each service, that we are reminded not only of the present bodily return of Jesus Christ, but I think as we equip the church to say, what are those lenses? How do I look at the events that are going on in the world to be answering some of those questions about how close are we? What are, what are some of the things that we're seeing that are indicators, you know, um, that prophecy is being fulfilled, that we're moving closer to this next chapter in the book, if you will. And so we've taken a, a slower approach this year. Felt like that was important as we were going through the book of First Thessalonians as a church. We are what I would consider an exegetical church. You're like, what is that? You know, exegetical means that we are teaching out of the Bible, kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're kind of explaining what does it mean? What did it mean to the people that it was written to? What does it mean to us? Whereas kind of getting into maybe this topical series over the last couple weeks is more uh, exhortational. Like we want you to, to hear and understand, kind of put the puzzle together. And there's things that I believe that God wants us to do in the light of what he's showing us. Everybody tracking with me so far? So this is kind of where we've been getting in. This idea of the second half of the gospel. You know, as a church, as Christians, Christianity should also be about living in the light of the return of Jesus. Amen. Like this is important, just like driving, you know, like my, my daughter was learning how to drive and you know, you get that point where they like make you pull by the curb and you got to look through the rear view mirror and what you got to like drive backwards and make sure you don't like run over anybody or anything like, but it's hard driving, looking through the rear view mirror. And don't get me wrong, like one of the most valuable like moments in all of history is the idea that God took on human flesh, walked amongst the earth, proving, fulfilling his promises and prophecies, dying on a cross, resurrecting, like, man, it doesn't get like any more awesome than that. That is the gospel. Our sins can be forgiven. Like that weight that we carry, that's a big part of the gospel. But there is another half of the gospel that as we read throughout the book of Acts, as we look at the way the disciples were, were, were going out carrying the message of what we would call the Great Commission, that they were living in the light of Jesus' return. And the fact that Paul wrote that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, how much more are we getting closer to that moment in which the, the big vision, the fulfillment of the gospel, God's kingdom here on earth when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, thy kingdom come. Like there is a kingdom, there is a king. That's part of what we're praying about. We get so caught up in the things that are going on in the world that I get it. We've all got bills to pay and things that we're trying to figure out. But the idea that there really is a coming king and a kingdom and eternity and the Bible talks about all this. Sometimes we don't talk enough about it. 
And it's an important part as we deal with all the things that are going on in our world. So last week, I started, our emphasis has been trying to equip you guys with those things that you absolutely need to know. These have zero ambiguity in terms of the Bible's really clear. We called this our fixed points if you will, kind of like the North Star, if we were navigating. Um, and so here, these are the three things that we talked about. What does the Bible say about the return of Jesus? About this idea of this millennial kingdom, this thousand year reign, like Jesus ruling and reigning here on earth. And then ultimately the idea of a new heavens and new earth. Like this is all stuff the Bible talks about, eternity with him. So now moving backwards, we've kind of been moving closer to where you could argue like we're asking the question, are we living in this time? How close are we getting to that? The next two events that we talk about in eschatology, the study of the end times, are these two events called the apostasy. And then the other one is whom? The Antichrist. And that, like if you Google that, you will find that so did like a couple million other people. Like that idea of the concept of the Antichrist. Who is he? What is this all about? I mean, that is a question that has permeated, you know, throughout history and books and, you know, whether secular or religious, like movies, like everybody's often talking about this. And so I want to arm you with some information, you know, as we kind of ask the question, what does the Bible say about these things? So again, just kind of understanding our framework for eschatology, this is what we started talking about last week. One of the things that my job as a pastor is to say, okay, what do we know? Not what does Caleb say? What does this denomination teach? What does the Bible actually say? Like, what do we know as fact? And then based on like our, our understanding of scriptures, there are things that we think we know. In other words, there are things the Bible says, absolutely, Jesus will return. There will be a millennial kingdom. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible also describes that there will be an antichrist. But guess what? It doesn't tell you, isn't it? You're like, spoiler alert. Oh, man. Like, there's things we know, and then there's things we think we know. Like, it gives us information to start to be like, to discern, to say, how does that fit into these boxes? And so, one of the things that we kind of look at in terms of understanding eschatology, don't let what you don't know get in the way of what you do know. In other words, sometimes you get so overwhelmed by these things that we just kind of do the ostrich Christian thing. We're just head in sand. I don't want to think about it. Like, hold on. No, based on what I do know, what kind of decisions am I making in my life? What kind of decisions am I making with my family and friends that are living in the light of what I know to be absolutely true because God is not a liar. And so a couple of things that I want to arm you with as we're getting into this idea of prophecy. Number one, as we talked about this idea of like fixed points, celestial navigation, the way that most people had to navigate oceans and stuff is like, okay, I got a fixed point. I got the stars and I got my instruments, like a sextant that helped me understand and navigate these oceans. Well, for us navigating the, the ocean of prophecy, the Bible is our compass, The Bible is what gives us this fixed point. And one of the things that we need to know about the Bible is uh, commentators, people that when we we look at studies of the Bible, you know, they they would say that there's over 1,817 different prophecies in the Bible. That's a lot of prophecy. In fact, a quarter of the Bible, you could argue, is prophetic. Now, out of that, half of these prophecies have been filled already. And guess what, guys? The Bible is batting A thousand in prophecy. Like that should tell you, like there's something when we look at like, how do I know the reliability of the Bible? We could talk about manuscript evidence. We could talk about archaeological evidence, you know, but one of the things that makes the Bible pretty unique throughout history is this idea of prophecy, communicating things that God says are going to happen before it happens so that you know that he's who? 
that he's God. Like that's part of the point. That's what he says even of himself in scripture. He said in the book of Isaiah, remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Like that's important about God's character. When I tell my kids, I promise, if I don't deliver on my promise, that makes my word really hard to trust. But when my kids are like, dad, you promised we're going to get ice cream. And I'm like, oh, I did promise, right? Like they're holding me accountable to my word. And when you and I begin to know and study both the promises of God, the prophecies, like these are things he declared. He said, this is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, that makes me a what? So you got to understand there's a reason God has given us this information and one of the things that we need to know about Bible prophecy is it is reliable. We're not dealing with Nostradamus. We're not like, like throwing out like, okay, let's just see the, the lottery of information. Like the, there are multiple prophecies, areas that we can look back in archaeologically, historically. And we can say the Bible is batting, like I said, a thousand. Just alone, if we were to look at the prophecies relating to Jesus' first coming, there were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, right? Like when we were going through the Christmas story, it's like Bethlehem and Nazareth. And we start to look at all these things. He went down to Egypt and came back. Like we could begin to break all these things down, the lineage of David. And we could start like one after another, after number. We're going like Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and they were outside of his control. Like he didn't get to pick where he was born. He didn't get to pick who his parents were. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? These are prophecies about the Messiah that were written long before Jesus ever, they're, they're not written after, they're written before. And when we begin to look at some of these prophecies relating to Jesus, some of the mathematicians helping us understand, like, why is that even important? So of the, the idea of prophecy, the probability of Jesus fulfilling only eight of these prophecies that I was talking about. One mathematician put it like this. It's one in 10 to the 17th, or I don't even know how to say this, 100 million billion right? It's like covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep, mark one, drop it from a plane, mix them up and have a person select the mark one at random the first time. All that to say, it's pretty awesome, right? Like the idea that even eight of them were fulfilled, like this is the mathematical improbability of that. So when I start talking about 300 different prophecies relating to the first coming of Jesus that he nails, which is why the book of Matthew, if you've been reading through like the, the Bible reading throughout the year and you see the words like, and it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled. Those are little markers for us to see how God is fulfilling his word. And so when you look and you say, okay, what other kind of prophecies are there? We look in the book of Daniel. We talk about the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. It marks empires very specifically and uniquely. And we're like, how did he know that? Exactly. God is declaring things even before they're going to happen. This idea of the exile and the ultimate return of the Jews back from Babylon, et cetera, and the rebuilding of the city. All of that was prophesied before it happens. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, these are specific prophecies that we can look at historically and we can kind of be like, wow, this, this is God batting a thousand. He does what he says and he says what he does. Now, part of the importance for us is prophecy really should be an anchor. When you see that God speaks these things to his people before they happen, 
part of it, sometimes these are like radical cataclysmic type events. The idea that Israel would be taken into captivity. It's like you want to know that God's in control and that God ultimately says, hey, you're going to be there 70 years and then I'm going to bring you back. That's why Daniel, we find him in Daniel 9 praying, God, you said 70 years for your people. He starts praying according to that promise. Why? Because the promise of God is an anchor. It's something that we can hold on to even when it feels like this doesn't make any sense. What's actually going on? The world seems upside down. When we look at what Jesus himself said specifically about some of the prophecies that he taught his disciples, and this is where you and I are getting into today, Jesus told his disciples as he was preparing um, to go on in those next 24 hours to the cross, he said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so part of the, the reason Jesus sometimes tells us these things before they happen is so that we might have peace. It doesn't mean that it's like none of these things are going to happen to us. It's going to be super easy and, you know, it's just like roses and cake. Because notice he says, in the world you will have, right? There's going to be challenges and difficulties and all the rest of these things. But in the middle of it, I can have the peace of what? God's promise. Though it seems out of control, I know that God is what? in control. That's so important as you and I even look out at 2024 and we look ahead and we see how unstable and overwhelming and challenging a lot of the things that we're thinking about are. And I can look back at this and say, okay, what has Jesus spoken to me so that I might have peace? So we continue on asking the question here kind of in the light of, um, in the light of a prophecy update. Some of what we're learning to ask is like, well, how close are we getting to the things that Jesus told us about. What are the signs of the times? Now, it would be exciting if like, you know, we took scripture kind of like, have you guys, I mean, when, you, when I, I Googled like, you know, different apocalyptic movies, you know, you look at the trailers and it's interesting when we look at like the movies where the end of the world is coming, you know, how many different things they have. Come, I just show you a clip like from one, like 2012 and this kind of see the clip and then think about that. This triggers end times prophecy, apocalyptic stuff. Let me see if it clicks when I play it here. Adhere to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year. This year. This year. What are the odds? <laughs> All right, you guys can go watch the movie another day. The re I know, it's like last week. 
the, the reason I, I show that, right, is it kind of stirs up some emotion. Hollywood's done a few things to like help us try to wrap our mind around things that are really hard to wrap our mind around. But where do you think it gets the ideas about some of the apocalyptic or Armageddon-type end-of-the-world scenarios? Like the idea that we are moving towards global cataclysmic events, you know, whether also from the Bible or this general sense that there's things that are coming. They're going to be completely overwhelming. They're going to be world changing. And so we realize that the Bible actually talks about this. And the idea that like, how do we be ready? You heard that little clip like, I thought we had more time. I was talking about this with a friend, you know, here in service and we were just like, Imagine if prophecy wasn't a part of scripture, right? Like we just prophecy and then we just like, and, and the idea that we would wake up and the world would just be like radically changing before our eyes. The very things that we're learning about would happen and you didn't know anything about it. And the scary thing is there are people in our lives that that's their exact reality. You and I have the information. The question is, what do we do with it? And how, how am I really taking it to heart? What does the Bible actually say? Because those things that we see in some of the movies and things like that, when we aggregate it, like there is a reality to, to geological changes and geographical changes and things that will be happening in terms of nations and kingdoms and wars and rumors of wars. That's what Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 24. And so again, although there's things that we don't know, part of what we need to be asking ourselves is what do we know and what are we doing with what we know? Because again, when I talk about the idea of the rise of the Antichrist, like for some people, the eyes start to roll, right? You get in that like Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. But this isn't like a Caleb Calvary Chapel thing. This is Jesus himself, the Bible talking about this person who will be rising at the end of the age, who will be the human manifestation of Satan that will culminate in this battle that we are waiting for. And here's the thing. It's not, guys, spoiler alert, God wins. You don't have to, some of you guys are like, what? But God wins. You know, we talked about that last week. But we have to move out of the realm of this Disney concept of like, oh, allegories and good information. Like we're dealing with real events and real situations that will actually be, happen. And I can look through the, path, the, the, the lens of the history past to confirm that. When he said Assyria is coming or Babylon's coming, they came. And the chaos and the, 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 the global catastrophe that was kind of involved in that, like the Noah and the flood, like these are things that he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the return of the Son of Man. Like these are things that he wants us to know. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us. Now, let's get back into scripture here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by the word or by letter, as it is from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, notice, even here in Paul's day, this idea of the present return of Jesus, like, people had questions, like, did we miss it? Like, are we going to miss it? Like this, you know, the, the, the things that were going on in the, the world, the Roman Empire, the, the persecution of Christians, all of this 
created some confusion and concern. And part of what Paul is uh, teaching as he's writing his letters is like, hey, there are things that we know because of the promises and prophecies of Jesus that are our anchor. Part of the study of end time should encourage our hearts. I don't want you to walk away from this place like totally scared, tail between your legs. It doesn't mean it's not scary. It just means that we have a hope, we have information in the midst of this that gives us confidence. Now, here's where we get into anchors. Notice there's a specific anchor that he's speaking to the Christians there, and this is what they were worried about. They were worried that there was this idea that maybe Jesus had already come back. Maybe they had missed it. Maybe those that had already died had missed it, et cetera. And so he lays out some specifics, some things that help us know this will happen and then that will happen. Notice he says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day, talking about the idea of Jesus's bodily return, setting up his kingdom, defeating the enemy, all of that, is that will not come until what? The falling away comes first. What is this idea of the falling away? What are, what are we looking at on the picture? That's Huntington. Oh, good. See, Orange County people. All right. And like ever since I was a kid, I remember going to the beach, you know, with the parents and the family. And then you'd go out there and I go with my kids. And one of the first things you do and you walk on, you like, you look to see which lifeguard stand you're by. Like, hey, we're by lifeguard stand number three or five or 17, whatever it is. Right. Because once you get in the water, what happens when you're out there playing in the water? You start to drift, whether you notice it or not. When you're in the water and you look up, and you're like, I'm like two lifeguard stands down. Right, Just being in the water, there is a current that will cause you to drift. And one of the things that the writer of Hebrews said specifically says, look, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. When we think about the world that we're living on, there is a current that wants to carry you away from the truth of God's word. And if we're not paying attention, right, just like, hey, what's my fixed point? What is it that I know so that I can come back and be like, okay, I got to get, I, I'm kind of, I'm getting carried away here. I'm getting pulled aside by the currents. When we think about this idea of this deception, this apostasy, there are a number of areas where right now today we could talk about like within the last year, within the last couple of months of different ways, different areas where you see people trying to change, adjust the word of God to try to fit the culture today. We can look at the Catholic church. They're having their own argument around this whole topic because the Pope came out and said, hey, we're going to go ahead and bless or approve same-sex couples. And you hear, right? The, the, the discussion, the dialogue, even amongst the priests going, hold on, wait a second. But you go on to look in each church and each denomination and you can begin to hear all kinds of different things that are being communicated in our culture that people are wrestling with because this idea of an apostasy is a what? It's a falling away. I'm moving away from truth. And so when we start getting into the idea of teaching the Bible and we're not teaching it as the word of God, when you hear churches, and I can click, give you YouTube links where there are pastors that are up there talking about the idea that God is a woman, or God is trans, or the idea that all roads lead to heaven, or the idea that there's no hell, the point is we go from what God's word says to begin changing it or adjusting it maybe to suit the culture, and this is where we begin to talk about this idea of what? Apostasy. We're falling away by the current right? The current of the culture. And you can go back throughout history and there are all kinds of heresies and ways in which people have tried to change or adjust the word of God to fit that culture. As we, 
as we think about it even today, that's part of why we're here in church. Like, how do I stay anchored? You're here on Sunday. You're hearing the word of God taught, and that's important to be in a church that's teaching God's word. But Sunday's not enough. Am I reading God's word? What are the things am I consuming and listening? Because we are being taught by the things that we're listening to, you know? And so your podcasts and the things that you scroll through are impacting and influencing you. What's your filter? What is helping you stay anchored? Jesus said to his disciples, I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will what? Believe. I will not say much more to you for the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold on me. So notice, Jesus has given us facts. He's given us information. Why? The unfolding of prophecy shouldn't discourage us, but they should what? solidify our faith. When we get into the next couple of things where I'm like, okay, what is, what does he describe the world looking like? What does he describe? And, and we're going, wow, I think we're moving closer to that, that yeah, it's overwhelming, but at the same time, it should be exciting because it says God's doing what he said he's doing. And that means the rest is true, that the King is coming and there's a kingdom. And like all of a sudden that, that should give us a certain joy and excitement because guess what? This strengthens our faith. But he also talks about this idea of this one that is coming. He uses the word, the prince of the world. So as we get into this idea of apostasy and we talk about this idea of a falling away, this moving away from truth, uh, here's a couple of things that we can look at as the Bible talks about some other filters. And then you can kind of ask yourself, do I see this in our world today? Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five, Paul talking to Timothy says this, but know this, that in the last days, Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people, turn away." Does it sound like I just went through your like timeline in X or, or on the gram or whatever? Like, I mean, the reality is this is a lot of what we are seeing in our world today. And the Bible makes it pretty clear when we get to the end times, we get these last days. This is some of the fruit that you're going to be seeing in the world. Why? Because you're going to be, you're going to see a world that's in need of someone that can come in and be a savior. The challenge is that savior won't be Jesus. And so as we begin to look at some of these different things, we think about what does it look like to live in what we would call a post-Christian society? Let me show you a little clip. As recently as 1990, 86% of Americans identified as a Christian. Of course, they weren't all committed followers of Jesus. Many of them showed up to church only on Easter and Christmas and lived lives that were inconsistent with Christian beliefs. Still, they viewed Christianity positively. These were the people that would attend evangelistic rallies made famous by Billy Graham, Luis Palau, and others. Drawing on favorable views of the church, these preachers could fill stadiums and make arguments using the Bible as a source of authority. Times have changed. We now live in a post-Christian culture. Many people have walked away from the church. The fastest growing religious group in America is the religiously unaffiliated, with over 30 million added in the last decade alone. This is most pronounced amongst millennial and Gen Zs, making up approximately 45% of these two generations. 
This shift is largely due to nominal Christians becoming secularized. Not only has affiliation with Christianity declined, but the attitude has changed as well. If we were to examine how people view the church today, it would look like this. On one side, you have committed followers of Jesus who strive to live their lives in alignment with the Bible and are so enthusiastic about their faith that they are sharing it with others. Next, you have people who have a positive view of the church. They see the Bible as a moral guide, but it is often detached from a personal relationship with God. As you move along the spectrum, you have those who are apathetic. Here people are not consciously rejecting God, they just don't care or think about Him. Finally, we have those who have a negative or even hostile view of the church. They see it as a symbol of repression and bigotry. Unfortunately, more and more Americans are moving to the negative and hostile end of the spectrum. And yet, the majority of the church's evangelistic efforts today are still focused on those with a nominal Christian worldview, using a come and see or bring your friend model evangelism, all while the cultural divide between the church and secular culture widens. The big paradigm shift is that we can't wait for them to come to us. We need to go to them and learn to communicate the gospel in a language they'll understand. And I, and I like his observation again. Since COVID, I think a, a lot of the world is waking up to this, this kind of winnowing that's gone through the church. It's the way that people view the church, view their need to go to church, the value of the church. As well as as we begin to look about the discussions and dialogues of the things that are happening in our world, we see that the, the basis for how people make decisions, you know, whether it's marriage or relationships, it's no longer like, hey, what does the Bible say is the standard for right and wrong? They've got a whole different paradigm for the idea of right and wrong. Having lived in Europe for 10 years, you know, we can look there a little further down the road of what we would consider maybe a post-Christian culture where we don't look to the Bible and Judeo-Christian values as like the standard. We're starting to see the secularization, thus what you saw in 2 Timothy. It shouldn't surprise us that that's the fruit. The challenge is when you just engage in a culture war, rather than communicating the gospel, it's like the idea like Noah. It's like, hey, we're going to, let's just stop the rain. Guys, the rain is coming. Our job is to build a what? A boat. That's about communicating the gospel. People need to know the truth of what's coming. In fact, where I think we're going is we're starting to move from this idea of a post-Christian to what you would call an anti-Christian. Josh McDowell said it this way, we no longer live in a post-Christian society. We live in an anti-Christian society. One in which Christian faith is dismissed or ridiculed and Christians are considered suspect in their motives and behavior berated. Like, it's interesting to see how Christians are portrayed today, right? In the media, in the news, et cetera. Like, if there's going to be a people group that you're going to kind of belittle or marginalize or minimize, it's okay if they're the Christians. Like, you can just see how that aspect in the world is beginning to shift. There's a quick clip that I'll show you from, uh, and I could have picked any number of these, but this one's over in Finland. As a girl was, uh, a, a woman was facing arrest for a tweet that she posted in regards to posting a Bible verse. Paivi Rasanen is under investigation for committing a hate crime after she posted a Bible verse on Twitter aimed at Finland's state church for its promotion of the homosexual lifestyle. In my tweet, I directly cited Romans first chapter and verses 24 to 27 and posted a picture. A passage which condemns homosexual relations. 
She said her purpose was to wake up the church in Finland. And when praying, um, I got convinced that it is not my time now to jump out of the sinking boat as a parable of, of the church, but to try to wake up the sleeping ones in, in the church. Leif Namala, editor of a Christian newspaper, told us he was very surprised to hear Rossinen was under investigation. It was unbelievable. It was a real surprise. And uh, the first thought was, are we really, are they really going this far? If convicted, Paivi could face a fine or even jail time. But it's the precedent from this case that could affect every believer in Finland. I could take you to Canada. I could take you around to different places that are seeing the same kind of things. The idea of laws changing centered around hate speech, the idea of communicating Christianity. But here's the thing. Although we're seeing the signs of the times, we also have more freedom right now than we've ever had. Like, I get to communicate in Pakistan and so many other places around the world. We can look at this and go, how dare they? But we can also understand that the window may be closing, but you and I have a what? We have a window. Because the reality is this is what's coming, the criminalization of Christianity. Like I said, not just persecution, but prosecution. That will be coming. One of the things about the Antichrist that it says, as we look in the book of Daniel, it says, he will speak against the Most High, oppress his holy people, and try to what? Change the set times and the laws. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. You go to the book of Daniel, we think about, right, Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are examples of what I mean by the criminalization, not just persecution, but prosecution. Like you are facing consequences for being public with your faith. Now, some of you guys are like, I'll go to prison. Okay, I'm with you. I got you. Um, but let me just ask you. The present time is what I tell people who want to be missionaries, et cetera. Like what you're doing now is a much better indicator of what you're going to do in the future. How public am I willing to even be right now about my faith? And I don't mean like just, okay, I wear a Christian t-shirt audit. Like I think I got my chosen socks on right now. You know, like, like I, we, we all have different gear and swag and stuff like that. That's awesome. But the reality of living out your Christian faith, of how I talk about it, People seeing the fruit. Do they see it in my relationship? Do they see it in some of the decisions that I make? Like that, how, how public, when someone's talking about a need, am I willing to pray for them, pray with them? Like just really thinking through that a time's going to come. And I've, I've been in countries where I can't, I don't have the same freedom. I understand what that looks like. And the world is going to move closer to that. So as we look again in the first step in the idea of the rise of the Antichrist, the first step was the apostasy, verse three, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So now we move to the second part of the verse. So we see the apostasy is the first thing that precedes the rise of the who? Of the antichrist. And so when we think about this idea of antichrist, this is a biblical term, we get it from the Bible. It really in your head is a combination of two words, anti, so for some we think like anti, I'm against this. Okay, that's part of it. We saw that in the verse. He is against in the idea like the gospel, the kingdom, but really the other way that it means is instead of, 
right? He is a pseudo Christ. He is going to come and try to be that replacement that the world is longing for. Like we are creations longing, the church is longing for the return of the king. So there's a sense that people are longing for something, whether they know it or not. And there is one coming and he's going to try to be a savior. He's going to try to bring peace and all the things that people think that they want, except that's not who he is. Now, when you want to study, and again, I tell you guys, get the app. All these notes are in the app. There's no way you're going to be able to write it all down while we're here on a Sunday. Um, But there are some verses. In fact, there's about 100 verses in the Bible that help us put together a picture of the Antichrist. The ones at the top, those are kind of the big ones. Daniel 7, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, 1 John, 2 John, Revelation 13. That kind of helps us really put together the personality, the, the blueprint, if you will. But when we look to study some of these verses, a couple of things that we need to understand, even from the time of the uh, the disciples, John wrote this, you know, as he was one of the last living disciples. He said, little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, notice many Antichrists have come by which we know that this is the last hour. So one of the things that we have to delineate as we're studying is the Antichrist and a Antichrist. You're like, what? A, the Okay, prepositions are important. The idea, as it says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it gives us a little description about this idea of the spirit or the working of the Antichrist. It says, he is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is an Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So we see that the spirit of the Antichrist has been at work from all the way from the time of Jesus' day to present. And each heresy, each false religion, each aspect where we see this idea of the denial of the truth of who Jesus is, we think of Islam, right? And in its basic tenets, like God has no son. Why? Like there is the spirit that wants to deny the truth, right, of who Jesus is. And we can probably lay out a hundred more examples of that. Then when we look at 1 John 2, 8, uh, next one, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. We talk about Jehovah's Witnesses and we talk about Mormons. There is a deception anytime we begin to twist, change who Jesus is, what the word of God says. It often begins with an angel told me and I have a new revelation and that revelation often either de, um, it, 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 it changes the deity of Christ, you know, and focuses more on this idea of humanity or takes away his humanity. There's a number of different things that we can point to. But this idea of false religions, cults, these different worldviews, Marxism, et cetera, where it's like, hey, we got to, we, we're going to, we, the world are going to usher in. Like all of these are different ways in which the Antichrist is trying to work to fulfill and prepare his plan. And guess what, guys? The spirit of Antichrist is working today. You don't have to look hard. Like I just, I just look back over the last week or two to pick like one or two examples of what I mean by the Antichrist working in different ways. All right. So let's drop little Nas X for you guys. Let's get into current culture pop, right? Now, hold on. I think a big part of this is to get like Christians and everybody riled up. People are going to look and scream and shout and whatever. But here's my point in which I'm talking about the idea of like antichrist attitudes. Like the idea, right, is to portray Jesus in a way which is not aligned with truth. And so here he is talking about like, he's trying to allure Christians, the one who had the greatest comeback. And then you go in, drop the lyrics in the song, and you're like, oh no, 
right? And you see how he's portraying himself like Jesus uh, in a very kind of, you would say, one sense blasphemous way. And then on the flip side, he portrays or identifies himself as an object or a tool of Satan. And again, like, let's just get Christians to kind of buy into the culture, engage thinking, hey, maybe here's a little on-ramp, this guy's. But the whole idea, right, is to get you to, to engage in a lower view, in a lessening view, in a blasphemous view, of Jesus. Okay. And that's an easy one. Two weeks ago, maybe I'll ruffle some feathers on this one. There was a video and I get it. I'm, I'm paying attention to politics. We need to be involved in politics, et cetera. But there's a time when politics can go too far. And if you saw the video, this idea that like the emphasis of like, so God made Trump, I get it. God made each one of you. But when you start to make a political candidate as if they're the savior, and in the video it actually says, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Who does the Bible refer to when it's talking about that? Jesus. Not any of our political leaders today. So when people, and this may not be him, but when people begin to do that, like let's use politics as a way to get you to think of a person as like the savior that you're waiting for, that's not good. That's the spirit of, I mean, that's where the world is moving. It's going to move towards a global leader who's going to come in. He's going to make everything right. He's going to defeat what's evil. And guys, we'll get into more of this. I'm going to get into one more session when we get into like the tribulation. And I think aliens and all that. You're like, aliens, what? But I mean, think about some existential threat. Someone that's going to come in and save humanity and then change laws. Like what, what kind of things are going to have to go on in the world? But like this stuff happens and you got to have your Jesus filter on. Pay attention to politics. Get involved. I get it. But don't start treating people like Jesus. That is part of the work of the Antichrist. So what are we paying attention to in scripture? The rise and fall of the Antichrist. Not just a Antichrist. He's at work. That spirit is already at work. The question is, what does the Antichrist then look like? What do we know about him? Fast forward to Revelation chapter 13. It gives us a pretty good picture of what life will be like when that person is in power. What's interesting, like when we go to the book of Daniel, you know, Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, this dream, and he sees this beautiful gold statue. You know, it's like, this is the empires of the world. Except when God describes it, he describes them like beasts, you know? Because man sees these beautiful, like kingdoms and that stuff. God, he sees what's working behind it. And so notice the title that God is using to describe this antichrist. He's described in Revelation chapter 13 as the beast says, and I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, Revelation, when it talks about the idea of the sea, uses that image to describe multitudes of people, right? So that's what it's talking about, this person emerging out of like this mass of people. And it says, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horn ten crowns, and on his head was a blasphemous name. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Part of the things that you need to know about the book of Revelation is it's quoting the Old Testament. And here in the book of Daniel, these terms were describing the rise and fall of the nations after Babylon, Greece and Rome, etc. And so he's using imagery that we know about the rise and fall of empires. But notice, here's what's important. It says the dragon, talking about Satan, gave him his power his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all of the world marveled and followed the beast. So when we talk about an antichrist, 
who's actually, right, uh, instead of a replacement to notice, right, the devil can't create, he counterfeits. You notice the playbook, right? There's this person who's going to rise to power. And this is why every Sunday I like talking about Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Like that's how we know the false because we know the truth. But this person is going to rise to power for such a time as this. And if we were to study, we can go back in the book of Daniel, know that there's going to be kings. They're going to rise to power that are there to help give him authority. But this person's ultimately authority comes as a human manifestation of whom? Satan. There's a reason he's called the beast. And there's going to be a sense in which it's going to look like whether this guy gets assassinated or something happens and he comes back to life. And you can imagine in a world where right now if something happened, we could all open up our phones, X, YouTube, whatever, and we could all see globally something happening. Imagine if somebody died and was assassinated and we're all like, oh man, that's terrible. And then, <laughs> right, they're back to life. Imagine how big an impact that would have on the world, right? Now, as we begin to look at this text, a couple of things are important. We notice this idea of Satan giving him power and authority. That's not the first time that we see that. If we go back to the temptation of Jesus as described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you look there and uh, we notice that one of the temptations of Jesus was this idea that Satan said, look, if you'll just worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Like there is a role that Satan currently has. There's a, there's a function maybe even going back to the garden where man advocated his authority that God wanted him to, to rule and reign here. And since the consequences, the separation that we have seen in the garden, there was a prophecy, a promise that one would come, the dragon slayer. It sounds cooler when we say it that way, right? The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. There's a seed war that's been going on since Genesis. And this is kind of where it's culminating in. And the idea that Satan has authority, that he has power, the Bible actually describes him, Paul calls him the God of this age. John 16, 11, we saw this earlier with Jesus. He calls him the prince of this world. We see in Revelation chapter 20, what I was mentioning earlier, this, this combination of terms, the dragon, the serpent, the devil is Satan. That ultimately we saw this last week, that Jesus will come back and you will actually see his judgment as he will be thrown into prison for a thousand years and then ultimately into the lake of fire. Now notice when we get back to verse four, it says people worshiped the dragon because he was given authority to the beast and they also worshiped the beast and asked who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and all those who live in heaven. Part of the role of the Antichrist is to get the worship of the world to be focused on who? Him. We saw this back from the argument in terms of the fall of Satan, where he wants the glory of who? God. And what we'll see here on earth, literally hell on earth, this antichrist person who as he comes to power during this time will be focusing the idea of worship to him, which is ultimately where we get this idea, as you'll see in the rest of these verses, the mark of the beast, not buying or selling, like the idea of the changing of laws you know, to where this person becomes the tyrant, this person becomes the emperor, the Caesar, the ruler of the world. And he's been given authority to do this for a time. Notice in the book of 2 Thessalonians, we saw earlier, there's some markers, things that help us understand key points to tell us we're moving closer. It says this antichrist person will ultimately stand in the temple of God. Where's that? Jerusalem. Is there currently a temple standing there? No. So one of the things that we can look at, like I said, there's what we know, there's what we don't know. 
We don't know when the temple's going to be built. We don't know how it's going to be built. In fact, that's a really hotly contested area. There's a lot going on there right now. So the idea that a ruler will come, that he will actually enter into a treaty, be able to accomplish the building of the temple so that ultimately he can stand in the temple declaring himself to be God and to be worshiped, this abomination that causes desolation, like that's a sign, a clue. In fact, Jesus says it's a clue. When you see that, run. Like in other words, he's making it clear that it's all about to unfold. And so we know this for sure. This person's coming. He will stand in the temple, declare himself to be God. But right now there's not a temple standing. But if I were a betting man, I'd be betting on the idea that there will be a temple that's built. Why? Because God says that in order for the Antichrist to stand in the temple and declare himself to be God, that a temple will then be built. And this is what I mean by there's what we know and there's what we don't know. We don't know when it'll be built or how it'll be built, but I got my eyes paying attention to it. I know that there's a number of things already in place for it to be built. And it just tells us that we're getting what? Closer. And it says again, getting back into Revelation 13, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people. And to conquer them, it was given authority over every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Guys, this idea of him being a beast, this idea of him waging war, like when we look at Jesus' description in Matthew 24, we talk about the wars and rumor of wars and all the, 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 the catastrophic things that are taking place in the world. That is why this time is called the Great tribulation. This is not a time of celebration and rejoicing. This is not the king that the world has been waiting for. This is not, although he will come in as someone who looks to be offering peace, will have all this political power and clout, as it says, he's been given words to communicate, like people look at him and say, that's the one we've been waiting for. But as we begin to read about him, we read about what his mission is, what his purpose is, destruction. Fast forward to verse 14. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Guys, it sounds overwhelming, but notice it's talking about this person will have a power, an ability to perform signs and wonders to where people will be deceived, saying that person is God, right? Like we go back to Moses and we see the things that God was doing, but we see like, here's this, this power that the enemy had. And so we recognize that like even the idea of signs and wonders and all of that, there will, this person will be given a certain amount of authority to be doing miraculous things, which is why, like I said, when we get into the idea of UFOs and extracurricular and all kinds of magical occult stuff, and you wonder like, what's all that stuff pointing towards? You start to realize that the Bible describes someone who's going to come, who's going to have power and authority and do signs and wonders that cause people to say that is the person we've been waiting for. And they miss who? Jesus. Notice what he does. He forces all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man that is the number 666. That's where that comes from. Now notice it doesn't give you his name. But it's given you quite a description over the last couple of verses. And we see that when this person comes to power, it will be global power. 
and in utilizing his power like a tyrant, it's for a purpose of declaring and setting himself up to be God to the point where you have a universal control over both finances, buying and selling, global governance. This is kind of the sole purpose of like this antichrist rule and reign. So when you think about the signs of the times, we begin to think about like what his ultimate kingdom is going to look like. In Matthew 24, Revelation 13 helped paint this picture. Matthew 24 describes the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all the ge geological and meteorological stuff. That's in Matthew 24. The economic and social signs, the idea that the world is moving towards this, like this unification. We need a global governance and a global policy and like you can start to see signs of that. The political and geographic signs. What's going on in Israel? All of the kind of things that you would need. Up until 1948, people were really confused about what Israel looked like in prophecy. Well, now that there is an Israel and a nation, that should be a giant wake-up call that God does mean what he says and he means, uh, says what he means. The religious signs, the apostasy, all the kind of things that start to tell you, guys, it feels like the clock is ticking closer to the end. Now, I put some of these things inside the app. I don't got time to get into all this today, but like you can look at some of the things that are going on in the world today. Like there was a famous conversation, Yuri Bezmanov, KGB spy, talking about the demoralization of like how nations try to actually create subterfuge, you know, of other nations. And you talk about the, the political decline. Like in other words, what would have to happen in America and the world for a leader like this to emerge? Fascinating conversation. Paul Harvey in 1965 did this amazing broadcast, If I Were the Devil, and you listen to it and you're like, wow. Like, but again, you're just reading from the playbook of scripture and you go, how did they know then, right? Like how you would start with the schools and you would start with families and you'd start with entertainment. And in 1965, you're like, I feel like he just said that yesterday. And as we begin to look, even you could rewind, man, I could get into a whole thing about the Illuminati being started in 1776 and the idea of the one world government concept, which again, here's kind of their basic like slated order. You know, the objectives are the abolition of ordered governments, the abolition of private property, abolition of inheritance, abolition of patriotism, abolition of the family, abolition of religion, creation of a world government. And you're like, this is crazy. That's conspiracy theory stuff. And then we go, let's talk about the WEF and the World Economic Forum. And you look, my point being, some of this stuff sounds crazy. And to the people who are actually involved in it, tell you that they're doing it. Like I could show you, this was from their video called The Great Reset.
Doesn't that look exciting? The reality is you can read, and listen, I put links to some of this stuff where there really are right now active global goals towards global governance and unified monetary systems and unified leadership. And there's all these existential threats that people are looking at, why we need to do these things. And, and the movement towards that and looking at the pandemic is like, this was the time for the great global reset. And my point is you're beginning to see the laying the foundation for what you've already been told. That's the lens that you need to be looking through. Some of their ideas, it's like, okay, I get where you're coming from, but who's pulling the strings behind it? So the question then becomes, what are we to do? Let me give you one verse before we get ready to move into communion. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Talking about the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Guys, we have a role to play. Like this idea of the restraining force. Like what is restraining? What is holding back the unleashing of all that the enemy is going to do? Number one, the gospel. The power of the gospel we are communicating and talking about right now is a buffer to what the enemy wants to do. It makes it a lot harder for him to accomplish his plans. The power of God's spirit, God's spirit working through his people. That is currently functioning and serving as this thing that is restraining the works of darkness and the mission of the church, our global mission to reach all the way to the ends of the earth. That is helping thwart, stop, slow down this plan. So when you and I think about this idea of playing part of the resistance, the restraining force that God has equipped you, called you in this time, in this space, you can think about how awesome it'd be to live in any other time in history, but God has chosen you to live in this time. And as part of the restraining force, what are we doing with what we know? Anybody know who that is? As Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, priest, spy, during the time of World War II, there in the rise of the Nazi government, amazing guy leading the, the training of pastors while Nazi Germany and the churches were moving into pacifism, et cetera. And he actually got involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, ultimately was killed because of that. You guys are like, whoa, hey, I can show you a clip in a minute. I put it in the app. There's a movie coming out about him. The reason I put it up there, guys, the time is coming where once again, you're going to be faced with making a decision. That living as a Christian is no longer just about like, hey, like this is my easy, comfortable Christian life, that living as a Christian really is about being a part of the restraining force, the resistance. He would say, Bonhoeffer says, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. And the greatest act of resistance that you and I can do is to share the what? The gospel. What Jesus did and what Jesus is going to do. Guys, people need both right now. In a world where the current is trying to carry them away, you and I have the anchor. People have to choose a side. It's going to get harder and harder to make that choice because there's deception, apostasy on all sides. And the question is like, I need God's spirit, God's power. So in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to get ready to take communion together and really just think through what he's done for us, what he's going to do for us. So let's take a moment. The guys are going to start walking around with communion. The worship team's going to come back up. 
And uh, we're going to take a moment and pray as maybe for some of you guys this is the first time you've really felt like the puzzle is coming together and you're like, man, I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to get caught, you know, in that current, get swept up. I don't want to be someone that falls victim to the Antichrist. Well, that's easy. What you need to know is Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And that is where we start right now. Jesus, as we take a moment and we pray, and we are reminded, Lord, that you told us, your disciples, these things so that we might have peace, so that we might have confidence as this day approaches, so that we might have an answer to the hope that lies within. And Lord, right now, as, um, as we prepare to spend time having communion, thinking about your body broken for us, thinking about your blood, Lord, I would just start with anybody right now whose heart's kind of pounding, who feels a little insecure and overwhelmed, Maybe they're thinking about the idea of being left behind or, Lord, getting caught up in this world and not having an answer. Lord, I would pray for that person right now that they can know the truth. They can know the hope. They can know the confidence that comes with your name, with your blood, with your promise. And so if that's you this morning, if you need that anchor so that you don't get caught up in the drifting of sin and the drifting of lies and the drifting of the rise of the Antichrist, then today... Today is the day you make your decision to say, Jesus, I believe that you are God, that you died on a cross for my sin. Lord, that I want to turn from this current, this world that's pulling me deeper into this darkness. I want to move towards you and your light. Would you fill me with your love? Would you fill me with truth? Would you free me, Lord, from this sin and darkness and hopelessness, would you come into my life? Jesus, I thank you for your love. And Lord, right now, I wanna pray for anyone here who, Lord, who knows you, but just feels like they've drifted away. Just feels like maybe the last couple months, last couple weeks, maybe the last couple of days. This feels, Lord, like they've just been drifting, either insecurity, fear, or whatever it is. And today we look up at that lifeguard stand and as we take the cup and we take the bread, we remember, Lord, that your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. They cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we do. We come during this time of worship and prayer and we confess our brokenness. We confess our anger, our bitterness, our fear, our lust, any of the kinds of things, Lord, that just get us swept up in that current. And Lord, we just receive your grace. We hear you say, I forgive you. We hear you say that you love us. We hear you equip us, Lord, with your power, fellowship to go and sin no more. And so Lord, we come to honor you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Everybody said.